Our model of democracy, underpinned by human rights and the rule of law, is being challenged across the globe. Human rights are our ultimate tool to help societies grow in freedom. And we must have the foresight and courage to imagine what might happen if we don't act now. And instead, please, create the world as it should be. Young and old, male and female, rich and poor, from all creeds, races and tribes, they are the heroes of this story. Welcome to Intersections, where human rights and democracy meet. I'm Marty Flax, Director of the Human Rights Initiative and Kosravi Chair in Principled Internationalism at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. Each episode, we'll tackle current events with activists and policymakers at the center of efforts to promote human rights and build stronger, more sustainable democracies. In this episode of Intersections, we discuss the rights of refugees and the responsibility of states to protect people fleeing from persecution. The international framework that outlines the rights of refugees is centered around the 1951 Refugee Convention and its 1967 Protocol, developed after the displacement of tens of millions of people during World War II. Today we're in the midst of another massive movement of people in Europe. As we record today, more than three million Ukrainians have fled the Russian invasion. In recent years, we've also seen large-scale movements of refugees all around the world, from Syria to Venezuela to Myanmar. These movements have disproportionately burdened developing countries, which host 86% of the world's refugees. So how do these 70-year-old documents help us navigate current global migration challenges? How well have the United States and other countries lived up to the expectations set out in this international human rights framework? And in this era of rising populism and even nativism, what does our treatment of refugees say about us as a democracy? Joining us today to talk about these issues are two experts in the field. Krish Omera Vignaraja is the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Services, one of the largest nonprofit organizations in the United States working to resettle refugees. She previously served in the Obama White House as policy director for First Lady Michelle Obama and at the State Department under Secretaries Clinton and Kerry. Jan Hoysiter is the Deputy Representative for the UN High Commissioner on Refugees Office in Washington, D.C. Over the last 24 years, Jan has worked with UNHCR in Budapest, where he oversaw the organization's activities in nine Central European countries, as UNHCR's representative in Malta, in Bangladesh, where he led coordination on the Rohingya emergency response, and in the Caucasus region. Well, thank you both for being here today. I want to start with how both of you started working on this issue. Refugee rights is a topic that many people who work in this space are really passionate about. Krish, I know you have a personal connection to this issue. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So my family actually is from Sri Lanka. So I was born there, came to the U.S. when I was nine months old. And the reason why my family fled uh, Sri Lanka as it was on the brink of a civil war was because we were part of the ethnic and religious minority. My family knew as the country devolved into a growing crisis that they had to get uh, their young children out. So they really sought refuge any place uh, that would take us. Um, unfortunately, uh, the only country that would was Nigeria. So we actually were supposed to move, move to northern Nigeria, where I'm sure some listeners know um, 276 girls got kidnapped just for going to school. 
But while we had our bags packed and plane tickets in hand, ready to move there, our visas came through for the U.S. And so we were lucky enough to move to the U.S. And I know that whether we had remained in Sri Lanka or moved to Nigeria, um, our lives would have been very different. And so taking on a leadership role at Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service has felt like a blessing to me, uh, my way of being able to play it forward. That's amazing. What a story and um, what a what a classic American immigration story as well. Jan, you have been working in the space for many, many years. How did you come about uh, working on refugee issues? Sure. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's quite a that's an inspiring story from Krish. And, and, and I have to say my mind is perhaps a bit dull in comparison. I grew up in a, in a very quiet, protected and stable suburban environment in Norway. And you know, from quite a young age, I, I was always drawn to to understanding global issues. But it was really during my university years that human rights and and and, and refugee issues came into focus for me. And perhaps as a as a young and and a bit of a naive law student, I was inspired to learn then about how international law actually could provide for individuals' rights. It's it's such an imperfect system, but has such enormous potential. And I thought. I want to be a part of this. I want to play a part. So it wasn't long after my law studies ended that I found myself working for UNHCR in Armenia at the time. This was in the end of the 90s, in the aftermath of the Nagorno-Karabakh war. So it was really not an easy job as, as coming straight out of university, uh, but I did find it an incredible responsibility, such a privilege to have a job where you're, you're, you, you can have such a fundamental impact in people's lives. So this was almost 25 years ago, and I've, I've never looked back since. Incredible. Well, we're so grateful that both of you are working on these important issues. Um, Jan, let's lay the groundwork a little bit for our conversation. When we see these massive movements of people right now, for example, coming out of Ukraine and, and spreading across Europe, what should we be thinking about in terms of the rights that these individuals have when they cross international borders? What are receiving countries like Poland and Romania required to do? And what about the rest of Europe? I like that you frame the question as one of rights, because it needs to be said. You know, people who flee for their lives have a, have a right to seek safety in other countries. So, and I think you mentioned it already in your introduction, the, the 1951 convention framework, it elaborates on these rights and the corresponding obligations of states. And there's so much we could say about this, but let me make three points, three important points that relates also to the, the current situation in Ukraine. Firstly, it's of course about access to safety. Now, the cornerstone of the refugee protection framework is that as a refugee, you have the right not to be returned to a situation where your life and safety would be in danger. And so far, thankfully, the neighboring countries to Ukraine have kept their borders open to more than 3 million refugees who have fled so far. You may know, though, that there have been concerns about access for some groups to leave Ukraine also in this situation. So this is one of the reasons that it's so important for us and for others to be present at the border in this situation. Second point, many of the people who are arriving across the border, they need our help. The challenge is to ensure that, you know, simple things, people have a roof over their head, people have their basic needs addressed as they arrive, safe spaces for the most vulnerable people. So many families in dire need of support. We're seeing increasing numbers of unaccompanied children crossing the borders. 
What does it mean? It means that government authorities, international organizations such as ourselves, the NGOs, we need to work closely together to identify the needs, to respond to them. And let's not forget information. Information about registration procedures, providing information about services, information about rights. Again, another important role for all of us who are working on the ground. And thirdly, and not least, there's a need for solidarity. With the scale of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, it's obvious that this refugee situation cannot be responded to by a few countries alone. So what does it mean? It means cooperation based on solidarity, burden sharing. It's essential. You may also know then that the European Union took a really important step in activating its temporary protection directive. That means that all who are fleeing from Ukraine, in short, they have access to immediate protection status that's valid throughout the EU. It allows for freedom of movement. It gives them access to education, the labor market, social welfare. Importantly, it facilitates involvement of countries that are further away from Ukraine within the EU. Over time, surely some people will need to find solutions also elsewhere, such as through family reunification here in the US, for instance. So, yes, so far there's been an impressive outpouring of support in Europe and beyond. I can mention also the the generous contributions in terms of resources from the US to the response. So now it will be important to ensure continued and sustainable engagement, because no one, of course, knows when will this refugee situation end. Absolutely. And Jan mentioned solidarity. And I think that's a good segue, Chris, to to come to you and the situation in the U.S. You know, we're obviously an ocean away from this particular conflict physically. We're so often physically far away from many of the refugee crises around the world. But we also have responsibilities and even obligations towards refugees who are fleeing these kinds of conflicts. What are our obligations to these refugees here in the United States? And how does the U.S., go about fulfilling those responsibilities? So our obligation to Ukrainian refugees is twofold. Of course, there are legal obligations under international humanitarian law, and I think that John articulated those incredibly well, um, the right to seek protection, uh, the right to not be sent back to violence and persecution. Um, These are bedrock principles, um, whether it is principles that the U.S. embraced or principles that the international community has embraced. Um, It's interesting because these principles were essentially forged in the fallout of World War II, which represents the last time we saw displacement in Europe on this scale, you know, just in terms of how fast we have seen it. Uh, But I think it's also important to think about uh, our moral obligation. As the world's humanitarian leader, we are called uh, to act when we see our fellow human beings at their darkest moments. It's about recognizing the common humanity that any one of us could be forced from our homes and then putting that compassion into policy. And in the U.S. context, the primary way we've done that is through the refugee admissions program. So since 1980, we've welcomed and resettled more than 3 million refugees through this program. Uh, That's a powerful legacy, but the program, of course, has suffered setbacks in recent years because of the drastic cuts of the Trump administration and the pandemic. So we went from resettling nearly 100,000 refugees per year to less than 12,000 in Trump's final year. Um, Not to mention it's an intensive process that can take years for applicants to get through. So we need to rebuild and reimagine the program to adapt to these mass migration events that have increasingly become the norm 
in recent times. And so in terms of the current Ukrainian crisis, we may not see refugees come through the program in large numbers until a few weeks or a couple months from now. But we have to get creative in exploring options right now. So one urgent priority should be surging staff and resources to U.S. consular posts in the region. The demand for visas has skyrocketed, particularly in Poland. So we need to ensure these processes are streamlined and expedited. And that's actually one request the President of Poland stressed in a joint press conference with Vice President Harris. Beyond that, we should also consider using humanitarian parole to admit Ukrainians, particularly those with U.S. ties. So this is basically an authority that DHS has to grant entry to those without visas in hand for urgent humanitarian reasons. And there's certainly precedent for it. Parole has been granted broadly to groups like Hungarians fleeing Soviet oppression, Vietnamese refugees, Kosovars. And even as recent as this past summer, it was used to admit more than 70,000 Afghan evacuees. And all that's to say, we just need to recognize where U.S. humanitarian systems have gaps, especially when it comes to urgent needs like this, and to be bold in living up to our obligations. Thanks, Chris, for laying that out for us. Um, and I want to pick up on a group that you just referenced, because, of course, this issue was in the news a lot last summer and fall uh, during the Afghanistan crisis. You know, the following the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, hundreds of thousands of Afghans fled the Taliban takeover. Many of them were displaced internally, but many moved across dozens of international borders. And as you referenced, more than 70,000 were brought into the United States many with the support of your organization. Where are we now on the treatment of Afghan refugees, um, both in terms of admission to the United States and how they're being resettled here once they arrive? Really appreciate that question, Marty, because I do think it's critically important, just as we are addressing the newest crisis, um, not to forget one that is uh, far from over. The very latest, and happy to report um, that just this week, Uh, when the Department of Homeland Security uh, designated and announced temporary protected status for Afghanistan. This is something that we've been working hard for the last several months um, to ensure. What that essentially provides is it shields Afghans already present in the U.S. from immigration detention and deportation. The vast majority of Afghans who arrived in the U.S. entered under a two-year humanitarian classification known as parole. That's what I was referring to when I say humanitarian parole, meaning they didn't come as traditional refugees. So that's left tens of thousands of them without a legal avenue to obtain permanent residency. And so while the TPS designation is a welcome decision, I just want to be clear, it doesn't address the lack of a pathway to a green card, to a more permanent status. It's still very much a kind of legal limbo that these Afghans face. And that's why our legislative advocacy has been focused on the passage of an Afghan Adjustment Act. It would essentially provide much needed stability by allowing evacuees to adjust their status to permanent residence after one year in the U.S. And again, certainly not without precedent. In fact, it's actually the norm. Congress has passed adjustment acts for Cubans who fled the Castro regime, for Vietnamese evacuees in the 1970s, and for Iraqi allies after Operation Desert Storm and Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so that's what we're advocating for for our Afghan allies, because it's what we've done throughout our nation's history, 
And it would be a real collapse of congressional leadership if we don't extend the same lasting protection to the allies of America's longest war. Jan, as you listen to all of these layers of legal mechanisms in the United States that apply to different groups, depending on their presence, depending on their status, how they're admitted, it's an incredibly complicated legal and policy and practical picture. And I'm curious how UNHCR engages in that. You know, a lot of people think of UNHCR in terms of your role managing refugee camps in, you know, places like Kenya and Jordan and Pakistan, where you're directly responsible for protecting refugees' rights to to safety and to shelter and to food. And, you know, less than a quarter of the world's refugees actually live in camps. 75% are, are outside of camps. And you're also responsible for helping to protect their rights. But how do you do that in a context like the United States, for example, where the situation is so incredibly legally complicated? Sure. And, and that's a great question. You know, what you're saying is so true. The, the, this this uh, televised image of, of tent camps and food distributions, it very often doesn't really give an accurate depiction of the refugee experience. And, and it also doesn't reflect this broad engagement of UNHCR and other partner organizations on, on these complex issues. So let's maybe take a, a little step back and look at, at the fundament for UNHCR's work on all of this. And that comes in basically back 72 years ago when we were given our UN General Assembly mandate, which, you know, in a few words, calls on us to provide protection and solutions for refugees. And it asks us to do this by assisting governments and by supporting civil society organizations. When it comes to, to the, the solutions for refugees, we often speak about the three main outcomes. So the first is the ideal solution of voluntary return to a home country, of course, when it's safe to do so. When that is not an option, and unfortunately, that's often, often the case, the options are long-term integration in a host country or finding a new life through resettlement in a third country. And the U.S. has been, a, as we heard, a major contributor to that through the years. Now, how do we work towards these outcomes? It does depend on the situation and the context. And let me highlight a couple of points that also relates to that U.S. reality that you speak of. Firstly, the response to refugees is primarily a government responsibility. So it's governments that sign the refugee convention. It's governments that hold the key to provide the protection environment that the refugee needs. So what does it mean for us? It means that we spend a lot of our time and our resources to engage with government, so also the U.S. government. It means advocacy for implementing those government obligations, advocacy for governments to uphold the rights of refugees through the way they develop legislative systems, policies and practices at the borders, for instance. As part of the effort, we also provide support for building national asylum systems, developing response capacities on the ground. This can be long-term painstaking work, not very glamorous, very much, you know, focused on making a contribution so that the governments can, can do the job that they are obligated to do on the, under the convention. In many situations, of course, governments can't cope, just simply due, for instance, to the scale of movements. So in that, those situations, yes, we do sometimes step in and, and take on responsibility to determine who is a refugee, 
We might step in uh, with setting up camp environments, providing relief items in the Ukraine context. We now have, of course, a presence in the countries in the neighboring regions, and we contribute then to those government efforts to strengthen capacities available there. When it comes to the U.S., of course, we do have concerns about how uh, how the U.S. has managed its borders. So I speak about advocacy for, for U.S. responses. You will all know that over the last two years, the way that the U.S. has, uh, for instance, applied its, its system to not allow asylum seekers access to the territory based on the um, CDC order, Title 42. That means that you cannot access asylum procedures if you don't arrive with documents to, to cross the border. So that for us means a host of activities of engagement that continues as we speak. And we're hoping that over time we'll, we'll, we'll have an impact also in the U.S. context. We feel that there are better and other ways to respond to public health concerns than what the U.S. has done in that situation. Lastly, perhaps maybe the most important aspect of our work is one that... Thinking back to the, all the refugee operations I've been working on through these years, there's one thing that always remains the same. The heaviest lifting is always done by people themselves. It's the resilience of refugees, the welcoming host communities. Those are actually the most essential components, those that can enable protection and solutions. So that's why our direct engagement with refugees is so important, be it through registration and, and, and welcoming activities, Sometimes simply listening to people's concerns or engagement through a range of activities that are aimed at empowering communities to improve their own situation. I'd love for one of you to just give a, a quick overview of this Title 42 issue. I think it's really important. I'm not sure all of our listeners will know the context. Title 42 is an emergency public health order that President Trump put into place a couple years ago. And while public health officials have been crystal clear about the fact that it was not uh, based on a public health rationale, it has been used to essentially disallow even asylum seekers from entering the U.S. And while we have advocated for its uh, rescission, it still remains in effect. So, Jan, I'm just going to come back to you. Tell us about why this law is so problematic from an international law perspective and how should states balance genuine public health concerns with their responsibility to accept refugees? Yeah, and that's a great phrasing of the question because we do recognize that there is a need for and states have a right to take measures to address the public health concerns and, and COVID, of course, presented a very real challenge for, for all countries around the world. And, and indeed, there, there was a need to balance that against state obligations such as towards refugees. I mean, from, from the outset of, the, of, of this situation, from UNHCR, we did acknowledge this, the situation in the terms of, of the need for states to take measures. But we did also make the point that these uh, measures should not derogate from the absolute rights of people who are in need of protection, people who need to find safety from, from persecution and war. So in short, what UNHCR said was there are a host of measures that can be taken, such as a screening, medical screening, quarantining when that is required, testing uh, regimes, 
you know, many countries actually very early on had had experience with doing this and were able to maintain throughout the COVID epidemic exemption for asylum seekers in a situation where it was essential to uphold the refugee protection regime. So uh, we've even collated data on this where country by country we have shared with, with governments what others are doing. And we've continued to do this also in the U.S. context, showing the U.S. that there was an alternative to Title 42. We're hopeful that we will sooner rather than later see the end of Title 42. That will not resolve the damage already done, but um, we need to we need to move on from, from a situation where uh, refugees and asylum seekers have to pay the highest price for uh, what was already a d- difficult situation for all countries. Thanks, Jan. I want to go back to a point you just made about the U.S. asylum process, because I think it's really important, and I think a lot of people miss this, and, and Chris referenced it early on. But talk a little bit more about the difference between the rights of uh, people who may be resettled into the United States, which the U.S. sort of determines every year how many people are coming in, versus the rights of asylum seekers who show up at our border or seeking entry into the United States as a first country of safety. Talk a little bit more about that. Thank you for raising that, Marty, because yes, it's often misunderstood uh, when people talk about the difference of resettled refugees versus people seeking asylum at the border. The start and the end of it is that all people who flee their country because of persecution and war are refugees. Um, The far majority of the more than 80 million displaced people around the world, including more than 20 million refugees, they remain in their region of origin. They have fled, in most cases, making their own way to a safer location. There's no obligation for them under international law to seek asylum only in the first country where they arrive. So all countries have a responsibility to individually assess asylum claims of people who are arriving at their borders. Now, given the pressure on the main hosting countries in the world, and their main not primarily in Europe uh, and in North America, UNHCR works with governments and NGOs to assist with finding solutions for vulnerable refugees in third countries. So this is what we call resettlement solutions for refugees. And the U.S. has for some time been a global leader in this regard. As Chris mentioned, in recent decades, more than three million people have been assisted to find a new home in the U.S. And we hope that the U.S. is, is about to step up again the numbers in this regard. But in view of the global displacement numbers, such resettlement efforts can never replace the obligation on states to receive refugees arriving at their borders. This is why asylum seekers' access to territory and national asylum procedures is so essential, and so also in the U.S. context. The people arriving at the border, their rights to protection and solutions remain, even if they arrive without visas and travel documents. I'll come back to a point that both of you referenced some interesting things about how different groups of refugees are treated, both based on their status and and also their country of origin. You talked, Jan, a little bit about some groups having more difficulty leaving Ukraine and entering Poland than others. Krish, I thought it was interesting that it took six months for Afghan refugees to get TPS, and we saw TPS for Ukrainians in a matter of, of weeks. There's been some coverage in Europe as well about this perception that there's a there's disparate treatment for Ukrainians who have been really warmly welcomed 
in Europe versus the sort of extreme reluctance that we saw by European governments to accept refugees from Syria, from Africa over the last 10 years. Um, and it feels like there's a very strong racial element to this. But some people have used this language of rights and this discussion we were just talking about with Jan to argue that, you know, Europe, for example, doesn't have to accept Syrian refugees who first fled to Turkey. It's uh, the U.S. doesn't have to accept refugees coming from third countries. Krish, can you help us unpack this argument a little bit and explain why it's important that all countries take in refugees from these situations? You're right that it is an unfortunate dynamic that we've seen across the globe. You know, just to give you one stark example uh, of even what we've seen here in the U.S. at a political leadership level. You know, we saw 31 governors come out against accepting refugees fleeing Syria, you know, which was clearly in part a result of, of Putin's aggression in 2015. And yet, of course, we've seen a stark contrast of bipartisan support from governors um, in terms of accepting refugees in Ukraine today. It was only a few years ago that here in the U.S., the Trump administration championed what they call the safe third country agreements, which essentially forced asylum seekers to first seek refuge in El Salvador, Guatemala or Honduras before they could apply in the U.S. And I'd point out that these Northern Triangle countries are far from safe. We see people fleeing corruption, oppression, persecution, climate disaster on a massive scale. Uh, but to your question, if you dig into the Refugee Convention, nothing requires refugees to claim asylum in the first country they reach, nor does it make it illegal to seek asylum if you pass through another safe country. And so that's where it's essential that all countries recognize this now more than ever, because there are more than 82 million displaced people worldwide. And when you have a global refugee crisis, it requires a global humanitarian response. No one country can tackle this alone. Obviously, the last three weeks has shown us that. And that's why it really has to be a wider mobilization of the international community. I think Chris said it well. When you mentioned the Syrian situation and contrasting it with, with Ukraine, I think it is it is uh, good to re to acknowledge also that yes, all, I was in fact in Eastern Europe, uh, Central Europe during this the height of the the Syria uh, crisis, and and there was also very strong support at least for a period of time, and and we should acknowledge that you know some countries certainly Germany and and, and Sweden stepped up to the plate and took something like a, uh, received something like a million million Syrians and you know, provided a very, very important safe haven. So, you know, it boils down to the same two points that Chris mentioned earlier. There is the legal issue here. It is not illegal to seek asylum. There are responsibilities by states to, to respond to those needs. But there is also the broader moral solidarity issue here. Look at the numbers of the, of the Syria crisis. You know, more than six million people were fled, but far majority in neighboring countries, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, that's still very, a very uneven response if you look at, at, at a situation that really is on, on Europe's doorstep. So the solidarity element, again, requires a, a stronger response from Europe. Chris, you talked about the need for a global response. Really, both of you did, that this isn't a, an issue that any single country can tackle. And of course, the U.S. European governments are important in this conversation, not just because of what they do domestically and the choices they make about who they accept 
in their own countries, but how they engage the international community on these issues and what they encourage other governments to do and how they help develop and further international law on this issue. So I want to ask both of you, what are the policies that you would like to see influential governments like the U.S. government take with respect to how they're messaging on refugee rights and how they're engaging with other countries about their obligations to refugees? I'd make three points on this. First of all, you know, and we've spoken about it a few times today, the majority of the world's refugees are hosted by a few host countries, most of them in the developing world. So I think while recognizing that U.S. has taken a global lead for, for decades on providing resources for refugee responses all over the world, I think it's worth highlighting that the U.S. and others need to continue this and needs to further strengthen the response to record displacement numbers. COVID has hit hard, affecting both people displaced and their whole communities. The needs are not going away. We need that sustained engagement to support uh, the, the hosting countries. Second, lead by example. You know, it, we mentioned the, the, the border management issue, how the U.S. and other countries is dealing themselves with the arrival of refugees. You know, good practices will always inspire others to take similar action. Unfortunately, bad practices will also sometimes find inspiration in, in other locations. So this is why we, we, we continue to raise this concern with the U.S. For, about the public health order that blocks asylum seekers from entering. It is really unacceptable under, under international law in how it affects asylum seekers arriving at the southern border. But it even, even more than that, it also sets a really bad example for the world of how refugees do not get the, the reception that they, they deserve and have a right to. And finally, again, the, the solidarity and the cooperation element. I think the U.S. and other countries in a similar situation have to use their strength and their leverage to promote and pursue true regional and global sharing of responsibilities. It can happen through resettlement. Chris talked about the need to get the numbers up again. Uh, it can happen through other legal pathways. Uh, it can, uh, of course, also happen through investment in solutions in, in the regions most affected. And importantly, it should happen through linking the, the refugee response activities with broader development efforts. It's important always, though, that these regional cooperative arrangements are not as an alternative to offer asylum at home for those who need it. It has to be both. And if, if the wealthiest and, and strongest countries in the world are not able to, do, to contribute this way, then who else is going to do it? I second everything Jan has said. I would like to see more consistency in the message. The Biden administration has tried to distance itself from its predecessor, and it certainly has made good faith efforts to mitigate the damage done over the previous year, four years. But there does seem to be a disconnect between the rhetoric and policy. Um, you know, I worked in the White House. The megaphone that you have from the White House is unparalleled. And so, you know, it undermines our credibility on the world stage when we try to mobilize support for refugees. And yet the White House has allowed Title 42 to remain in place at our border which denies people their right to seek asylum and expels them back to danger without so much as a court hearing. We've also heard iterations of this do not come rhetoric at times. But what we haven't really heard is a full-throated defense of the right to seek protection. But I think perhaps the most important message the U.S. can send 
is through leadership, by example, as Jan articulated as well. When the U.S. takes on that role, when it embraces refugees and asylum seekers, it really does inspire others to follow suit. We've seen this. We saw this when the Trump administration decreased the numbers of refugees. Other countries likewise did the same. And that's why by far the most effective way to build credibility is to return to that global humanitarian leadership role. Thanks. And finally, I want to turn inward a little bit and talk about what this means for us in the United States. We think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, and we pride ourselves on that. We talk about that a lot as Americans, and and many of those immigrants arrived as refugees or asylum seekers. In your view, though, how have our policies on refugees, which have fluctuated, as both of you have said over time, sometimes we welcome them, sometimes we've refused them. What does that mean for our democracy in the United States, Krish? Immigrants and refugees haven't just impacted our democracy, they built it. Uh, George Washington once wrote that America is open to receive not only the opulent and respected stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions. Now, I'm going to put for a moment aside uh, the fact that there was obviously an indigenous population that was here in the U.S., you know, as he said that. That's not something we've always lived up to, but we're at our best when we're striving towards those values because we need refugees and immigrants as much as they need us. They might arrive with little, but they go on to give back so much. They become our neighbors, teachers, doctors, essential workers, and ultimately our friends and family. And of course, in the context of our democracy, many go on to become our community leaders. Um, So just take, for example, one of our LIRS's former board members, Wilmot Collins. He arrived as a refugee from Liberia and broke barriers in becoming the first black mayor of Helena, Montana. LIRS also has had the privilege of resettling many Somalian refugees, one of whom happens to be Representative Ilan Omar of Minnesota. So we see the impact of refugee policy on our democracy in these high-level macro ways, as well as on a deeply personal level. More information on these issues can be found on this episode's webpage at www.csis.org slash podcasts slash intersections. Follow the Human Rights Initiative on Twitter at CSIS Human Rights. If you like what you just heard, click subscribe. See you soon.